by a happy, or more likely unhappy, coincidence. The debacle, shenanigans at OpenAI, that have occupied a lot of people for the last couple of weeks, coincided with the United Kingdom's COVID inquiry. And if the OpenAI board seemed to have behaved in a somewhat cavalier way, lacking much insight into the state of the company they were supposed to be governing, or more likely, more importantly, the state of mind of its employees, the revelations at the COVID inquiry underline the sense in which, whatever we may like to think, nobody really knows what's going on most of the time, as I've said before. But we persist with the view that somebody must, somewhere. We like to feel that somebody, somewhere, were we able to identify who and where, knows what's going on, is in control of what's going on, can foresee the future, plan for it, and avoid the worst eventualities to which human existence is otherwise susceptible. I think this unlikely, as I've said before, and the the events of the last couple of weeks confirm that it is almost certainly, quite simply, untrue. Nobody knows what's going on most of the time. And whether those who do know what's going on are in a position to do anything about it is, of course, an entirely separate matter, since it would be a very happy coincidence if the most competent people were to find themselves in positions of power. Nearly always, those who are most competent lack the egregious narcissism that's necessary to promote oneself to such an extent that one ends up as a prime minister or a president. However, let's just run over the history of this and see how the AI issue might just be the last episode in this long-running soap opera. If we go back a very long time, the majority of the world, when it emerged from the caves and started to use language and therefore acquired a capacity to generate narrative, story, myth, explanatory accounts of one sort or another, very quickly, it seems, started to suppose that there were such things as gods. We see this, I think it's probably fair to say, in every emergent culture and civilization in the ancient world. Quite what they believed in the days of the Stone Age and Bronze Age man is far less clear, but certainly by the time we reached the state where we could talk about anything such as an empire or a kingdom or a queendom, we seem always to find them accompanied by belief in some sort of deity or deities. We see it in Egypt, we see it in India, we see it in China, we see it in Europe. 
The Greeks and the Romans believed in pantheons of deities, as did most of their eastern counterparts. And those deities, it seemed with some immunity in terms of the lack of respect that it might otherwise have earned them, seemed to behave at least as badly as human beings and sometimes worse. So we find that what is going on on Mount Olympus, or wherever it might have been, in the realm of the gods, is little more than a mirror image of what is happening down here on Earth. And there are very good reasons for that, because of course it is a mirror image of what's going on down here on Earth. It is a projection, as we've said many a time, of the culture of our world into a supposedly eternal world. And it would take far too long and probably not add very much to the story were we to explore the gods of the Sumerians, the Polynesians and countless other early civilizations that emerged in similar fashion, always as projections of what cultures understood themselves to be, sometimes but not always, at their best. Into this mix, eventually emerged something that is in historical terms fairly remarkable, namely belief in a single God, a monotheism. And the most striking example of that is, of course, in Hebrew culture and tradition in what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. And there we see the emergence of a single God, a zealous and jealous God who will brook no rivals, who is the instigator, or so we're told, of all manner of actions against the heathen around them, whose gods are but idols who neither see nor hear. Mouths have they, but they eat not. Eyes have they, but they see not. Ears have they, but they hear not. They are just idols. Well, all right, so somehow or other, and remarkably in its way, this monotheistic belief gradually replaced the polytheistic beliefs of all those who lived around, often as a result of those who lived around being wiped off the face of the earth in some kind of genocide, as we would now call it, which sometimes receives the blessing of the monotheistic deity referred to in the Hebrew scriptures. So they go around slaughtering with a great slaughter because those they slaughter are heathens who worship idols and therefore deserve no mercy or understanding or forgiveness. It's pretty bleak if you extract that strand from the Hebrew scriptures. Of course, it has many other accompanying and contradictory accounts, which I won't go into now. So from this plethora, and it was, of polytheistic religions, 
there emerged a monotheistic religion in at least three forms, in the Hebrew form, in the Christian form, and 600 years later in the Islamic form. All three, at least in theory, owing allegiance to and deferring to and respecting and indeed worshipping the same one God, the supreme deity who is the Lord of everything, the creator, the sustainer, the one who gives, the one who takes, the one who punishes, the one who praises, the one who rewards, the one in whom everything is to be understood and with reference to whom everything is to be done. And in large measure in the modern world, if there is theism, it is that theism. I'm now, of course, uh, slipping into the habit of treating the Western, so-called Western world, and its culture and theism as the only one that there is. And of course, that is absurd. There are more people on earth today who are Hindus, Buddhists, Zen Buddhists, and various other things than there are people who are Jews, Christians, or Muslims. I think, just about. But of course, the monotheism also was accompanied by proselytizing monotheism, the notion that not only was your God the only God, but that he was a zealous and jealous God who would brook no rivals, and therefore one had to go out in missionary endeavour with great sincerity and intent and determination to convert the heathen to that to belief in that one deity. And so all sorts of Christian mission, which were not incidentally accompanied by imperialistic concerns, intents and ambitions, those missionaries often accompanied and sometimes preceded armies that where the missionaries failed, achieved what they wanted to achieve at the end of a bayonet or a musket. I am, as you will readily appreciate, simplifying a great long story. In the modern world, a great many people are far less inclined to believe in deities, but we are still obsessed with leaders, and not just with leaders in the political sense. We have this peculiar modern invention called the influencer, people to whom we defer for no apparently better reason than because we defer to them. We similarly have families like the Kardashians, who are famous for being famous, but who otherwise seem to have done nothing at all. We have our own version of the Greek and Roman pantheon in those who make films or pop stars or musicians of one sort or another, or artists or actors. And many of them, instead of living on Mount Olympus, live in Beverly Hills or the equivalent in other countries and cultures. And we are obsessed with them. And in an extraordinary reincarnation, if I can call it that, of the Greek and Roman situation, the more human they, they are, the more frail they are in the sense of morally frail, the more they fall down and, and collapse and die and get things wrong, the more we love them. Which was more or less as it was 
with the myths of Greece and Rome. So, once again, we have the notion that we defer to, respect, and show enormous fascination in the lives of other people who, although they are just like us, are, like the Greek and Roman deities, nevertheless larger than life in lots of ways. And it is that they are larger than life that is partly what makes them so interesting, so attractive, because the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And so we can take some sort of bleak, cold comfort from the fact that even these great people to whom the world looks in large measure and in large number do themselves still come to sticky ends. And so we can indulge in schadenfreude by looking at it and thinking, hmm, I'm not doing so badly after all. After all, I didn't succumb or suffer that fate. Translate that from the world of the so-called celebrity, who is the modern equivalent of the Greek and Roman deities, and you can look at politicians in similar lights. You can see personalities who are very much in the public frame of mind, and in all cases you can see that we look for comfort, reassurance, and some sense or other that there is somebody somewhere who knows what's going on. And this, of course, is nowhere more true than in the myth of the expert, the authority, the consultant, the politician, the leader. And I've said so much about leadership and my lack of interest in it and disrespect for it in this long podcast that I don't think I need to repeat it, although some elements of it are certainly going to emerge again. So we like to feel that somebody somewhere knows what's going on and is in charge. And we like particularly to think that our politicians are in charge, that they know what they're doing. Nothing is more popular than a film which suggests that there are, in MI5, MI6, the CIA, the FBI, or some covert international organisation like Spectre, that the Bond films and movies love to talk about, that somebody somewhere has a grip on everything that's going on that somebody somewhere is rather in, a, in an ambivalent, we are ambivalent about this, somebody somewhere is really watching over us. We don't like the idea, but we like the idea that nobody's in control, nobody's watching over us, even less. And so in a choice between having somebody on our side watching over everybody and somebody on the other side watching over everybody, we'll choose our side every time. We'll choose our gods over your gods, over their gods. Our gods are better than your gods. After all, they're our gods. Our gods are a civilizing force. Now, 
I've just spent 16 minutes summarizing an enormous history of anthropology and theology and religious behavior. But I think that the sum of it is that we like to feel that somebody is looking over us, somebody's looking after us, somebody knows what's going on, somebody's in control, and we like even more to believe that they're on our side. So all the gods of the heathen, which means everybody but our god, everybody else's gods except our gods, all the gods of the heathen, they are but idols for the simple reason that otherwise other people's gods are looking over us and we don't want that. Now, if you've borne with me, you'll be shaking your head and saying, yeah, but you're oversimplifying and you're taking a very particular view of the history of this. Yes, of course I am. I'm doing so deliberately to make the point that we like somebody, we like the idea that somebody's watching over us that someone's in control. And the COVID inquiry shows that nobody was in control. And any inquiry into almost any other political history would show the same. Nobody knows what's going on most of the time. So let's, without more ado, come to AI. And because I've now been going for nearly 18 minutes, let's stop this episode there and deal with AI as the all-seeing, all-knowing watcher over us and what it might say about us as and when we acquiesce in our deference to it. Thank you for listening.